For those of you that I have not yet met, my name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Bethany in West Seattle, and uh, I am so glad you all chose to join us, whether in person uh, or many uh, online. And so if you're watching online, welcome. So glad that you joined us. And for those that will be watching uh, sometime this week, again, so glad that you can join us as well as we continue our series uh, called Becoming Human. We're looking at this idea of, first of all, Christ, God through the person of Jesus, becoming human, and what that means for us today. And so you've guessed it, it is Advent, week two to be exact of Advent. Uh, And Advent is this word, this Latin word that means anticipation, uh, to, to wait. And this morning, we're going to see that oftentimes there's this human condition where waiting and being in silence and being in anticipation is a very hard thing to do. And maybe you've come through these doors and you are in the season of waiting for answers, for healing, for, for, for the right decision, for wisdom, for discernment. Whatever it is, if that's you, welcome. And I think God has something to say to you exactly with where you're at. And so, as we continue, our text comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 11. What did I say? 11 through 16. And for the reading of God's word, if you uh, are able, let's stand as I read. Verse 11 says this, Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been answered. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in his birth, for he will be great In the sight of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you that many of us, regardless of being Advent, that we come into a place where we we are in the season of waiting. And if nothing else, we're all in this season of waiting as we navigate this pandemic, the the things that we see on the news, the the political unrest, the, the racism, the systemic violence, the polarization in the world. Right now, we are all in waiting for something to happen, for you to move. And may we enter into these doors believing that you will, whether corporately and individually in our lives. And we thank you for that. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Now, what I'm about to say, if you know me and if you know me well, you will have a hard time believing this. And we just talked about this last night with some friends, but uh, my childhood, especially in my elementary and middle school years, uh, I was what my parents would call a little bit of a troublemaker, okay? Now, I know if you know me, that is hard to believe, but I used to be a little bit rebellious, not the, not the wild and crazy run away from home kind of rebellious, but more of a, you know, just really annoying my teachers and my, and my family and my parents. Uh, and so my parents would always deem me as a troublemaker. Again, hard for you to believe. 
But I remember one time, and I don't even know what happened. I remember being at school, and guess what? My teacher decided to send me to the principal's office. And again, I don't remember what happened. Maybe I was just talking too much. Maybe I was being a brat. I don't know. But my teacher sent me to the principal's office, and my principal said, for that day, she wanted me to go home. I was sent home from school that day because I got into trouble. And so my parents, particularly my mom came to pick me up, and I'll never forget. I don't exactly remember what I did, but I will never forget that car ride home. I was expecting my, my mom to give me a lecture that I need to be a better, a better student. Uh, I was expecting my mom to maybe raise her voice and maybe shout how upset she was with me. Or maybe she wanted to drill me with, with questions, which we know aren't really questions. It's really statements like, how could you do that? Why would you do such a thing? Why? But instead, as I got into the car, expecting all of this, I got something that I never expected. Instead of all of that, I got silence. And I don't know about you, but if I had to choose between silence and my mom shouting or or drilling me with questions or lecturing me with something, believe me, I would have chosen this side because I'll tell you what, that drive home from the school to my house was maybe a 10-minute drive, but it felt like an hour. And I don't know if you can resonate with this, but there's something about us humans that are just simply not good with silence, with even waiting. And who can blame us? Oftentimes, and again, I think you can resonate with this, silence is associated with negative connotations. Let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced whether given or received the silent treatment? That's usually a punishment or it's punitive. Have you, ever, have you ever experienced an awkward, an awkward silence in a conversation that made you feel really fidgety or uncomfortable? Have you ever just laid in bed in silence only to be wrestling with your own anxious thoughts? Silence is uncomfortable. Silence is, is difficult, especially as us being humans. The other day I was having a conversation with my, with my therapist, and it was a virtual uh, session. And there was something unsettling about that moment. I was toggling with my view between my therapist and my set of books that were just right next to me. And I have several books. And for those of you, again, this is serious, for those of you that do know me, know that I love reading. It's always been a passion of mine. And I remember talking to my therapist, and I was telling him that in this current moment, I was going through something strange, that I was having a hard time enjoying what I've always enjoyed doing, was reading. For some reason, in in, in the last several months, I've lost my passion for reading. And so I was unpacking that with him, and and suddenly it hit me. I, I had a revelation. And as I received this revelation, I started welling up in my eyes. I started getting a little tearied. And he was asking me what's going on. And I said, I think I've figured it out. I'm realizing that perhaps my loss of passion for reading comes from the very fact that when I do read, I'm usually by myself. I'm usually in silence. And it gives me too much time to be thinking about stuff. 
Reading has, in these past few days and few months, has, has forced me to confront my own demons and, and my own messiness and my own spirituality and my own heartaches. And for whatever reason, sitting in that silence forced me to just grapple and, and wrestle with all of that. And I didn't like it. And so now I'm navigating this thing where I've just really not enjoyed reading as much. And so I just avoid it. And again, maybe this is you. Maybe out of every effort to avoid the discomfort of silence, we do whatever it takes to avoid it as much as possible. Even maybe something like me, where you avoid something you actually enjoy doing. And I love what Katie Donovan, she's an author, and, and she's this founder of this consulting firm that that helps people negotiate. It's a consulting firm based off of negotiation around conversations, uh, especially difficult conversations. And she says this, silence is the hardest technique. It's against our own human instincts. We want to fill in the blanks. Let me read that again. I love what she says. She says, she says silence is, is hard because we always want to fill in the blanks. And don't we do this? You see, silence, it's not the lack of sound that's bothersome. It's the enormous amount of space we have to fill in the blanks. You see, oftentimes in silence, our minds run wild. It conjures up the future, thinking about the unknowns, our mistakes, our regrets, our pains, our, our insufficiencies, our anger, our sadness, our tears. <clears throat> and it seems to be the perfect time, I believe, for Satan to do his thing by inserting the lies about us and others that we so easily believe. Lies like we're not good enough. We're not worthy. We made a terrible mistake. We're not lovable. Fills us with shame, with guilt. It seems like silence ends up being a dangerous tool that Satan uses to deceive us. <clears throat> but know this. As much as we want to avoid and ignore and neglect the discomfort of silence, it's often in that silence that we're able to hear God. It's in the stillness that we receive from God. It's in the meditations of our own hearts that we see and the ways that God is moving in our own lives. In other words, silence becomes the intersection between our own brokenness and God's transformation for our lives. And I think during this time of Advent, we are really invited to be still, to be quiet, to be in the waiting. This is the story that we just read of Zechariah and Elizabeth. In Luke chapter 1, <clears throat> the writer, uh, he says that he's writing to this guy named Theophilus. This is the first few verses, and so this, this is a little bit of backdrop. Now, Luke is writing to Theophilus. We don't exactly know who Theophilus is. We do know that he's an important figure, a, an influential figure, perhaps a, a government official. Nonetheless, we don't exactly know, but we do know that the reason why, why Luke is writing is Luke is giving a testimony to Theophilus uh, to confirm all that Theophilus has learned. 
that it's true. Mainly about the life, or the birth, uh, the teachings, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and Luke shows and shares his personal testimony of experience with the Messiah, with Jesus. And, and then in verse 5, he, after that introduction, he says this, In the days of Herod, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, I want to stop us right there. Right off, it says, in the days of Herod. Now, you have to understand, in the days of Herod wasn't just a statement of fact. In the days when Herod the Great was in charge, it wasn't just a statement. It was actually, excuse me, given us context of what was happening during this time. You see, Herod was a person who had power, hired by the Roman Empire. He was known as a client king, a hired king to be in charge of Roman empires and regions. And the particular region that he was in charge of, he was known to be an evil, evil man. And he was so powerful that he wanted to keep his power and that anything that threatened his power, he would kill. Anything and anybody, even his own family member, even his own wife. And and so people around the region that he was in charge of didn't respect Herod, but they were surely afraid of Herod. And, And so when Luke writes to Theophilus, this was a time when Herod was in charge. In the days of Herod, immediately what people would understand is, wow, these were not good days. In fact, these were probably some of the darkest days in the ancient history, particularly towards Jews and Christians. And yet, during this dark days and challenging days and days of hardships and trials and tribulations, Luke says, in the midst of that, let me introduce you to a couple. The couple's name is Zechariah and Elizabeth. In the midst of all that's going on in the world, let me tell you, well, first of all, that these two come from a line of priests. They come from a line of holiness, of religion, of teaching. And not only that, in verse 6, it says, both of them were righteous before God. That's a huge statement. In the midst of all the chaos and the uncertainties and the evil and violence in the world, these two were blameless and righteous before God, obeying the commandments and the regulations of the Lord. But Luke, as a writer, tells Theophilus, you have to imagine this, le- this letter, and it's going in this sequence, that the world is really messed up, Herod's in charge, and the world that is so dark and so desperate, yet there's this uh, amazing couple that loves God, that's blameless and righteous, and yet even their life wasn't perfect. It says that in verse 7, the next verse, they still had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on uh, older in years. And again, I won't talk too much about this. Now, during this time, bearing children was important. It was a way that carried on the family lineage, which was very important. And it's so important that if you couldn't or didn't do this, it would bring upon uh, an absurd amount of shame, not, upon you, not just upon you, but your whole family. And then the next verse, it says, 
once when he was serving as priest, so remember Zechariah was a priest, before God in his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, I want to stop us again. I want us to understand what's going on. We're living in the days of Herod. We know what that means. We know that there's this righteous and holy couple. We know who they are, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Part of Zechariah's job was he was a priest. And there was this thing that happened in the ancient Near East where they would cast lots, which is basically their way of rolling a dice, uh, several dice. Uh, And here... The winner or whoever was uh, selected by the, the casting of lots or the rolling of the dice, that person, that priest was selected to go into the temple, into a sacred and holy place to light incense. Now that was an extreme privilege because, first of all, incense uh, was a symbol of prayer. This person that was selected by Lot was able to go into the holiest of places and commune and pray and connect with God in a special and sacred and holy way. Not only that, it's this. First of all, this opportunity only, A, happened to priests, and B, it was through casting of lots. And most historians would say that around this time, there was at least... 18,000 priests. 18,000 priests. So what Luke was trying to say was this. He was saying that the fact that Zechariah was able to go into the holy place of the temple and to light incense and to have that connection with God was was literally a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Most priests didn't have that opportunity, never got that opportunity, but Zechariah got it. And while he was in the temple, he had that one chance, what does he do? You would think that he would be praying for a a child. I think that's incorrect. I think most scholars and most theologians and commentators would say, you know what, even though the next verses say that the angel came and said, you will have a child, before that the angel says, your prayers have been heard, the prayers that were heard probably weren't about the children. At this point in life, Zechariah and Elizabeth probably have gone over, gotten over the idea of, chil- uh, of children and moved on. Uh, I believe, and, and this is many theologians and scholars, believe that once Zechariah entered the temple, he was praying for the salvation for Israel. He was praying on behalf of the mess and the chaos that we see in the days of Herod. And he's saying, God, I come to you in this holy and sacred place. Please bring upon salvation. Now, in their ideas of salvation, it wasn't just a place you go to when you go to heaven. Salvation was being saved right now, right where they were at, what they were going through. So essentially, Zechariah was like, all right, if I have this one once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to pray in this holiest of places through incense, I'm going to pray for my people to be rescued and saved from the hands of Herod and the destruction and the violence that they and me and we are experiencing. So God, save us. And Gabriel, the angel, came down and says, God has heard your prayer. Now, there's something very ironic that is happening here. God answers both of Zechariah's yearnings of his heart. One, he says, your prayers have been answered. And what we know is that uh, through John, his son, 
the rescue plan through Jesus will happen. And so the two prayers that were answered were, A, uh, I'm actually going to bring you a a son. And through that son, salvation is going to happen to your people. And you will call him John. says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will name him John. And then Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. Smart man. I love that he described himself as just an old man. When it comes to Elizabeth, oh, she, she's, you know, becoming wiser, God, if you know what I mean. How is this going to happen? And, and for me personally, I'm so glad that Zechariah responded this way. Because he essentially is asking for evidence. He's saying, okay, angel, you're telling me that I'm going to have a son. How? Tell me what's going to happen. And I don't know what it is, but there's something about this idea of evidence and proof that he needed. He says, angel, tell me how this will unfold. I have doubt. I have fear. I have disbelief. That's essentially all the things that Zechariah is saying. And I'm so glad he said that because I oftentimes feel the same way. I mean, I understand what the Bible says. And I know oftentimes the plans that God has for me. Plans to, to help me and, and, and love me and bring me joy and take away my sorrows and pain and, and all these things. And yet, sometimes I have a really hard time believing that just by watching the news, just by having conversations with my friends, just by watching my news feed on my social media platforms, just by seeing all the division in the world to see the, the systemic violence and racism and structural you know, brokenness and oppression and marginalization of people and even our individual conflicts with others and our family dynamics, especially during this time of the holiday. I know what the Bible says. God has plans to make you happy and joyful and prosper. And yet I want evidence because I don't believe that this will happen. And so I I don't know about you, but I I resonate with Zechariah. Now, what's interesting is that, again, this is where the information about Zechariah and Elizabeth, them becoming from a line of priests is important. That as a priest, Zechariah was a priest, And as a devout Jew who studied the regulations, the history of his ancestors, he would surely know the story of Abraham and Sarah. And this story quite resembles that story, uh, where uh, his ancestors, Abraham and Sarah, uh, also were promised descendants, but they didn't believe God because they were, it says in the Bible, over 100 years old, and yet it happened. God provided. God came through with God's own promises. And and yet, even knowing that story, an example of God's faithfulness, Zechariah still had disbelief and needed evidence and needed proof. And so here's what happened to verse 20. I think this is really fascinating. But but now, because you did not believe my words, angel says, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute. Uh, Some translations say silence. I'm using the uh, NRSV, but it says, you will become mute, unable 
to speak until the day these things occur, until John is actually born. From this point on, the angel says, you will be silenced. You will not be able to talk. And I'm imagining because he literally could not talk. In fact, when he was trying to communicate and interact with other people, it says that he had to pretty much pantomime. He had to like, you know, like, hey, he had to use his hands because he physically could not talk. Now, this seems like a punishment, and I think it was. I think it was punitive that because of his disbelief that Zechariah could not, talk, could not open his mouth, could not continue speaking and conversing with, with others. And though I do think that's a little bit of a punishment, I also think it's an invitation. It's an invitation for Zechariah just to be still. To be silent, literally, to be silent. And what we see, and I'll kind of ruin the end of the story, is that, yes, uh, John is born. And through John, John paves the way for the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, But when John is born, uh, several verses later, in verse 67, it says, Zechariah, uh, this is after John was born, his son, the promise is being fulfilled. It says, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, and he and he spoke, he, prophet, he spoke the truths that God has given to him, to his people, about the Messiah, about hope, about joy that is about to enter into the world. Now, I don't know about you, especially during this time, with Christmas, when we have long lists of things to do. I need to go shopping. I need to figure out what to buy. I'm too late Again, I need to figure out this pandemic. I need to figure out what's happening in politics. I need to figure out and find solutions. Be a problem or be the solution to the problem of racism. I need to solve the problem of, of the family dynamics and conflicts and uh, even in relationships. I have, maybe this is you, maybe I have a big decision coming up and I don't know what to choose, which direction to go. And again, if this is you, just like it is for me, there's an invitation that God has for us, just like God has for Zechariah, to be quiet, to be still in our own hearts, in our minds, to hear and experience what God has for us. Because in the noise that we create for ourselves or the moments that we miss what God might have to say, now, I understand that being in, in silence, whether it's a, a metaphor of silence or literally in silence, I know that's uncomfortable. It brings upon feelings and emotions. It gives us an opportunity to fill in the blanks, which sometimes, which sometimes often leads to shame, to guilt, to sorrow, to insecurities. I know that this happens, and I know that being in silence with our own thoughts can be mirrors in a mirror that we don't want to look at, a mirror where we are afraid to, to see what we might see. But I promise you what God is saying, it's in those moments of vulnerability and, and of discomfort that God speaks to us the ways that God needs to speak to you and to me. Now, I believe that as you walked in here, God has something to say. Not just something to say, but God wants to move in certain ways in your life, in my life, and even our lives as a church. But, but be careful. 
because in the midst of our own busyness and our own talking and lack of listening and lack of silence, we might miss it. It's not that God isn't speaking because sometimes I always hear, and I, I say this myself, God, where are you? God, you're not talking. God, you're ignoring me. God, are these prayers even coming through? And I'm talking and talking and talking, and God's like, I'm waiting for you to be silent. I'm waiting for you to be still. And maybe that's just so hard for us right now. And, I, and again, like me, maybe you're somebody who needs to drive with music on. Maybe you're someone like me uh, who's at home, always needs to have background TV or sound or music on, or maybe uh, you're someone that if ever in an awkward, silent part of a conversation, you need to be the first one to speak up. Maybe you're in a waiting room or, or line at the grocery store and you have to bust out your phone because the silence is just so excruciating. But God is speaking. God is moving, and during this Advent season is an invitation for us to just slow down. Dr. Deborah Tannen, a professor of linguistics at Georgetown, I love this, says this. In Japan, the power of silence is recognized in the concept of haragi. Probably saying that wrong, but haragi which suggests that the best communication is when you don't speak at all. Further, it says that as soon as you need words, there's already a failure to understand each other, so you're repairing that failure by using words. May this Advent, may we redeem the beauty of silence that is not just associated with negative connotations, with sadness, with grief, with sorrow, with pain, with shame nor guilt, but instead silence and stillness is a time that we experience in fullness God in the midst of our own brokenness. Don't miss out. God is speaking and God is moving. Silence becomes the intersection between our own brokenness and our own transformation, our healing and our joy and our redemption. It doesn't mean that your life will be perfect. We know that from Zechariah and Elizabeth. It doesn't mean that all your troubles were magically disappeared, but there's something about the silence that says, Emmanuel, I am with you. God is with you, something we so often forget. And may we, we, may we remember that today and forevermore. So as I invite the worship team back up, may this be the first opportunity for you. Maybe you haven't had this opportunity in a long time to just close your eyes in stillness, in silence, as uncomfortable as it might be. And just to ask God, what do you have for me? And maybe this morning you want to take a posture of complete surrender. Because again, if you're anything like me, I always want to be in control. 
I always want to fill in my own blanks. And I say this all the time, and this is something that author, psychologist Brene Brown, she talks about all the time, is oftentimes in moments of, of uncertainties, we want to fill in our own blanks. Even if the story that we make up is a bad situation, it's better to have a bad story written down than uncertainty at all. It's called catastrophizing. We catastrophize by making up the ending of our own story, even if it's a bad ending, because a bad ending is so better than no ending at all. But this morning, may we take a posture, and if you're open to this, just sitting in your own seats, just putting your hands, palm open on your lap or just up like this, saying, God, I surrender of filling in my own blanks. And I sit in silence. I sit in quietness. And know that it's in those moments God gets a chance to speak to you. Just close our eyes just for a moment. There's this Eastern idea of meditation where we want to empty ourselves of everything. But I want to offer a a, a Christian rendition of that. It's not just emptying yourself, but it's actually filling yourself with all that is of God. And so with our eyes closed, I just want to pray for us, God, through your Holy Spirit, will you just fill all of us right now? God, you know the mess of our lives. We we know that we also have the in the days of Herod. Many of us were living in our own days of Herod. But God, we embrace your invitation to be silent in the midst of that, not needing to take control, not needing to find answers and solutions right away, but just with our hands open, we surrender to what you want to do in and through us. So God, during this time of Advent, the word literally meaning to wait, may we do just that. May we wait in anticipation of your, of your son, Jesus Christ, who was born for us and to us only to die on the cross and resurrect on the third day. We thank you for all of that. Give us moments this week where we will just ponder who you are. Maybe it's just five minutes every morning. Maybe it's half an hour every day. Whatever it is, give us just those pockets of sacred moments in the temple with you. May we see it as a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity every single day to just sit with you with incense slash prayers. In your name we 
we pray, amen and amen. Let's continue in worship.